like I said before, executing that perfect delivery. When you swing off and move out of the way and watch them go past, and you always give a big yell, like, that was, that was, you know, why you get out there and do that. And once again, you know, like, just that winning feeling within a team that we all, as athletes, you know, lot many athletes, not everyone, some people individual, but most of us pros or have been pro, you, you strive for that, don't you? You were just listening to a little bit of the episode that I did last week called The Lead Out Man. I'm Mitch Docker and welcome to Life in the Peloton. Well, actually, this is Talking Luft and that episode, if you haven't heard that, you've got to go back and listen to that because I am here at the Tour de France and that episode is all about how the lead out men do their job to propel the sprinters for victory. If you don't understand that job or you want to know a little bit more about how that job works or that role or how these sprinters win, you got to listen to that episode. But like I said, this is Talking Luft. I have got a great episode for you. The podcast this year is being brought to you by our proud partner, Rafa. I'm loving working with these guys this year on the podcast, helping me bring you these great episodes. But now to Talking Luft, I've got him, the style king I call him, Adam Blythe. He loves everything about style. If you don't know who Adam Blythe is, he's a guy from Sheffield in England. He was a pro for about 10 years, but in the last few years since retiring, he has become a welcoming voice on the GCN Eurosport coverage of all the races throughout the year, but especially here at the Tour de France. In this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about his career, and then we're going to jump straight in and have a chat about Talking Luft, because Blythe, he loves his style. He knows what it is to have a good bike. All those little intricate details that we chat about in Talking Loft. Like I said, I'm on the road following the Tour de France with the cycling podcast. I've been here since the start and I've only got a few days left. But I do have with me my AG1 travel packs. These are the portion-sized travel packs. All you do is you simply rip the top off, pour it into your shaker, shake it up and you're ready to go. It's been my go-to every morning. I've loved the little routine because what I do is I get up in the morning, I hit the road, try and get a run on, try and sweat out some of those beers and a bit of that food that I ate the day before, get back, feel like a million bucks, smash my AG1, hit a cold shower and I feel so good I'm ready to tackle the day. AG1 is the all-in-one. It's a comprehensive blend of vitamins and minerals, probiotics, and superfood complexes. It's the ultimate thing when you're on the road like this, eating out at restaurants, you know, drinking a few too many beers. At least I know I've got a good foundation of health starting in the morning. AG1, it's not just for the elite sports people. It's for everyone who wants to feel good and make sure they're covering their nutritional bases. If a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, AG1 is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash life in the peloton. That's drinkag1.com slash life in the peloton to get yours. Now go check it out. I promise you, you won't regret it. I'm really enjoying it. Guys, without further ado, this is The Talking Luft with Adam Blythe. Sit back. Have a laugh and enjoy. All right, well, I guess we kick this one off. Blythe, Adam Blythe, welcome to uh, Talking Luft, buddy. Thanks, Bird. It's nice to be on. Thanks for having me. 
Great to have you on. It uh, feels like only yesterday we were chatting, but it has been a long while. Um, you're such a easy guy to chat to, and I'm glad to have you on the podcast finally. No, it's good, mate. It's nice. I, um, I've been following what you've been up to. I have to admit, I'm not an avid podcast listener. I like to keep up with stuff via social media and stuff. And yeah, you've been flat out, so it's nice to have a chat with you finally. <laughs> well, just in case anyone doesn't know out there, I'm going to run through a little bit about Blythe's history. You know, He's from Sheffield in England. He was 10 years pro. He started with Lotto and he ended with Lotto, but actually he was on a whole bunch of teams between that. He was on BMC, it was also on NFTO, which I actually had to look up what that meant, not for the ordinary. Orica Green Edge, where we crossed paths, Tinkoff, Aqua Blue, and then he went back to Lotto. Um, mate, I really want to fast forward to this point in your career, sort of where we cross paths. It's in 2015 when you joined Green Edge, but actually in 2014, you went back to continental level in England, in the UK. And after four years being in the the top, you know, world tour or pro tour, whatever it was called then, suddenly stepping back to continental, it's sort of like, you know, disaster zones. And that's nothing against NFTO. Um, it's just sort of like, oh, well, once you're out, it's so hard to get back in. And I'll have to admit, I remember, you know, just watching you and racing against you. Once I saw you go back to that, I was like, well, that's it. Blythe's gone. You know, we're not going to see him come back in the world tour. Then you turned it around. You really turned it around. Amazing season, four wins. But I was, I was there as well in London when you won the London Classic and you came across to Greenwich the next year. I want you to talk me through that year and what you were thinking. Maybe you were thinking, hey, it's a strategic plan. I just want a year back in the UK and, you know, kick back. What was going on? Well, first of all, I didn't really have a choice of where I was going. I tried to get another World Tour team, but it was just at that point, I had nothing basically. And you know what it's like, once you've got nothing, you're sort of like, oh shit, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And NFTO came along, the owner at the time, John Wood, he he offered a good, not an amazing contract, but he just offered me a chance, you know, let me sort of breathe a little bit and generally do what I wanted um, in a kind of way. I guess the problem was going in there and sort of being who I was as such. Mm. It's like if any pro goes and goes back to their home country and does their like national series racing, you've got like a big marker on you just because of what you've done. Yeah. So I, was, I went back and I was originally, it's quite arrogant. I was like, oh, I'm going to, I'm just going to win everything I do. I'm going to win it. Like, <laughs> I, I have to win it. Well, you had to. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. It was really, I mean, it struck me the first race I did, I came second. But I was like, oh man, this is like, this is a completely new way of racing. Like as a pro, you either fight to get in the break. Once the break's gone, you ride it back eventually. Mm. The peloton will ride it back and then you fight out at the end. England is like, you fight to get in the breakaway. And once the breakaway's gone, that's it. You ain't ever coming back because there's not that strength in depth with the mm. team. So for me, I was like, this is near on impossible for me to win because I'm just not used to it. So anyway, we carried on through the season. Really struggled because we had all the crit series, which mm. was awful for me like I, I like a good crit but i was still focused on trying to win road races but there wasn't that many road races for us yeah. to ride so i'd be doing like four hours do a crit and then the next day go and do five hours the next day do a crit wow. and i was just like nailed yeah well it's like, it's not optimal at all like i've even experienced that coming back to australia in the off season you go down to a crit and you get absolutely nailed because your whole aerobic system or your your whole system is different you're used to doing like you said the five hour six hour races and you would thinking i need to be good next year i don't need to be good at crits so trying to yeah, do that combo would have been hell oh it was hell man I, I think i did six they were called tour series crits which is just like mm. a series of them i did six of them and i don't think i finished one like I was so bad and it was embarrassing, you know, you're like, oh God, but I kept going. 
And then we got to ride London. And I knew I was good, going good, but not like flying, I guess. Mm. And then you were in that race that day. It's like the rain, everything just made it hell. And there's one thing that I sort of, I was good at, I and mean, it's hiding. Like a tiny mm. little motor. I could just put myself in that little position that I needed to. And everything went right that day, I guess. It was just my legs were the best they'd probably ever been, being able to follow. And then I got that result. And then after that, then the chat started to happen. Maybe we'll have him back. But I think from then, for the rest of the year, I was just like every race. I think pretty much every race that I did after that, I went in and won road race, crit, whatever it was. I was just wow. like gold and I was flying. So it was, it was so good. And then got the call back up. And then it was like, right we're back in here we need to be we need to be on it again and it was it was so good but I think the thing racing in England is that I had no pressure really I knew I was the best in England and then coming back I was left to my own devices in England I like train what I wanted to do and then came back into well came into Green Edge and it was it was good man I loved it and a great season but I just never I never got where I needed to be again. Mm. I just never got to that level. And then I was just scratching on and off the surface of like, maybe a good result, maybe a bad result. He's done an all right job. And I think personally, I ride a lot of morale. Like it, I don't know about you and I don't know a lot, a lot of rides. I don't think it's really thought about a lot too much of what makes a difference to a rider. And it can just it can be the simplest things of like, you know, your bar tape. <laughs> Yeah, the way it's wrapped at the top it, it can be just the way that's wrapped or just the way what colour tapes on it and it's like those tiny bits where I'm like you look down you're like oh yeah I feel good <laughs> and I just I just never quite had that not that I didn't feel good but I just never got you know when you just feel at one with your bike and you feel at one with your training and your position and everything I just never had that click when it, I was it's with, so funny like, yeah it's uh, so funny you say that because we see it quite often with the Australian guys they come back for the Australian summer and they perform so well back home you know I'm talking about pros now they perform mm-hmm. so well back home in their home environment they do a whole you know three month block of training they do well at the Australian nationals maybe down under they get to Europe and it just just doesn't quite click they're out of that like you said, they've got control. They know what they're doing. And whether it is those little intricate things on the bike or feeling one with your bike or whether it's just feeling comfortable what you're doing, I think it's a really good point. It actually wasn't what I was trying to get at in the question. It's just like young pros now, it does get underestimated what that step is. And we, it's really difficult mm-hmm. to explain what that step is to World Tour. Oh, is it the racing? It's so hard. And yeah, sure, that is one part of it. But a lot of the guys physically are good enough to handle that if you look at the numbers. It's all the extra stuff, like you're just talking about. Feeling mm-hmm. it one, feeling this extra pressure from the team. And, you know, you came back a step and then suddenly you were just like, oh, I can be relaxed. I feel good. I can just do yeah. what I'm good at. And you go back up into the top. It's like, why have I got all this extra pressure on me? Why am I feeling, I don't know what it is. It's weird, isn't it? I think that's the thing as well. When you're in your home environment and you're in a, I'm going to call it a lower level racing, it's a lot easier to control if you're good. But the problem is we're coming to mm. World Tour is that you will never be the best. Like, I mean, look at Bogaccio. Like, he is he is ultimately the best rider in the world right now. But come the Tour de France, Vingago is going to be knocking back on that door. He's going to be pushing him again. And I think that's exactly what it is. If you know you're the best, you just keep doing what you're doing. But if you're always chasing something, you've got, you know, you've got everything to think about. You've got, you come home from training. If you've got a family, you've got to be a father, you've got to be a, a partner. And then you've got to think about, relaxing as much as you can you've got to think about you know stretching you've got to think about the next day you've got to think about your food and you know what it's like if, if everything's going smoothly that is easy 
But mm. you know what it's like as a, as a pro cyclist? You can always lose more weight. You can always eat a little bit less. You can always do more numbers. You can always do a little bit more training. And I think that's the bit then, the pressure of it. And especially if you're not quite there is that you get the call to come to a race. You've got, okay, Adam, you've got a two-month, you've got a two-week, three-week training block. You stay at home. You can get fit, really focus on your training. Mm. Six days in, oh, we need you to come to this race. We need you to come and, you know, we need you to come and do Tour of Poland or... And then you go to that race, you're not quite where you need to be in terms of what the team's expectations are. So you get an absolute kick. But clearly you shouldn't be at that because you're in a building phase, but no one understands that. You just got to be expected to be good all the time and and then excellent every so often. Yeah, exactly. And I I think that's the hard bit if you're on the back foot and you're always chasing that sort of... It's not a result, really. It's just recognition from the team that you're doing things right. And if you're not doing mm. things right, and if you're a little bit overweight, if, you re- if your results, if your job that you've got in the race isn't quite what it needs to be, that's when things start to become awkward. And then that training block that you need, you never get because you're just thrown into races as an extra number. You know, we yeah. everyone started bike riding because they're good at something. If it's good at numbers, you'll eventually get probably a result. But everyone wants to win. That's, mm. that's my thing with it. Everyone wants to win. And as soon as you're not winning, as soon as you're not quite getting that little, I'm going to call it click that little click that you feel that you need then you you're just like smacking your head against a wall like all your training you're like oh god this is awful that i'm trying to do this training the team saying it's right it's not right and it's just it can be so hard and so demoralizing i think for youngsters i'm not even going to say youngsters anymore because they've been pro since the 15 i think it's the riders that are like 26 to like 31 that sort once of time the, once the shine has worn off and it's yeah, like you know exactly. the whole Oh, yeah, I'm just finding my legs and, you know, I'm working for this guy and that's cool. And then suddenly the shine of everything's worn off and it's like, all right, buddy, are you going to do something? Um, yeah, yeah, And you're asking exactly. that question to yourself, but also everyone else is asking that question to you. Yeah, I think if you're asking it to yourself, there'll be people already asking before you've even started answering that question. You know, it's that's the hard mm. bit. As, as a youngster, I'd say, or anyone turning pro now, that's the that's probably the hardest bit, I'd say. This is one of the things I got taught when I was, I lived in Belgium when I was amateur. The guy that I lived with, Tim Harris, he was just like, you have to remember, you are the CEO of your own business here. This is just a business. It's, you have to forget about being a bike rider. You have to concentrate on being the best CEO of your business, and that's getting results, that's doing a job. And if you can't, you just chucked out. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So, yeah, I think that's all this. That's, I think that's what annoys me, like all this. We're a family. We're this. We're that. We're a family. It's like, come on, man. You're not a family. You're not going to look after me when I'm on my ass. when I've like, when my contract years come up. But ironically, that's actually when you need help, you know, and, and yeah. you always get help when you're sort of going good. And when everything's on your side and you're rolling, everyone's right in your corner. They're helping you. You're giving you, you know, lifts everywhere. You're getting the best bikes, the best bearings in your wheels. Yeah. You're, you're getting more momentum. You're like, I'm, I'm, I'm coasting here. It's yeah. when you're not yeah. going good is when you need, you know, all that extra stuff, the support, you know, psychological, blah, blah, blah. You know, you need all that. And that's why, you know, I'm a big advocate of building your own team around you. Guys that travel with you to teams, your own support network, because at the end of the day, like you said, your own business, you've got to get your own employees that work for your business. And that's something I'm trying to get across to the young guys. Um, It's something I try to do myself, not, not always that well successfully, but always try to have people working for me. Because, you know, working for the, the Mitch Docker team, because I could be on, you know, Green Edge or EF or whatever team, but at least I've got my own little squad who were, their prime focus was me. And there's nothing against the teams, you know, at the end of the day, they've got to be successful. And, you know, sometimes you, you piss off what they do, but they're just like, all right, cut that guy. This guy's cheaper and he'll do it better. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. But um, exactly. yeah, I do want to fast forward to what everyone else, well, will know you more currently as now, that voice, the voice the of cycling, bike. the new voice of cycling. Yeah, the commentator. The thing I find really interesting about you and actually probably most exciting about you is I think you're the guy who mastered the art of racecraft. And I saw it with my own eyes. It's something that you grew you grew up with cycling from a very young age and you are such a handy rider. Um, and often in races, whether you're my teammate or not, I look for where's Blythe? Crosswind coming, where is he? He's going to know where to be because you had that nose for it, that tactical nous. And I think you've transitioned that into the com box. This is something I've loved. From day one, you've called it how it is. And that's the stuff I love hearing about you when you're commentating because it's exactly what I'm thinking myself. I'm like, yes, someone's saying that. Great. That's exactly what's going on here. Tell us what it's like yeah. being in the box and calling it and actually trying to put that across, all your sort of knowledge, that sort of racecraft. Yeah, it's. I absolutely love it. And I love talking about it and I love picking apart a bike race because that's ultimately, it's not the big numbers. It's not, it is sometimes the big numbers. But for me, you always have to look for the weakest rider. You always have to look for the riders that are doing something not wrong, but someone that's just, you know, doing less turns or someone that's doing something mm. before a corner or anything like that. So I think, I think just watching bike racing, being able to pick it apart individually that's that for me is the key so you look at each rider individually know their strengths but then the other riders who's playing off of those strengths so like in the classics last couple of years has been great so you have you've got Wout van Aert who is for me like the greatest and but for Wout he takes so much responsibility when he's in a small group Mm. he'll always do longer turns and you can see riders like last year in Roubaix you can see riders like Van Baal, just sitting, waiting, 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 letting Wout do the big turns, <laughs> letting Stefan Kung do the big turns. And then Dylan goes, right, I know I can do this. Bam. He's let them do like 30K of like, oh, and they rivet. And then he, he's I'm just so gone. Strong. So I think it's knowing what each rider is capable of, knowing, and so strong, yeah. But it's, it's just trying to be quite honest with each rider's actions. I think that's the main thing is that you look at someone like Wout and you know kind of, traditionally what they've ridden like you know what they've done in the past couple of races you know the pressure that they're feeling so you can predict what they're going to do and then you look at the other riders and say right they're probably thinking what i'm thinking they're trying to do the least amount of whatever it is and then Mm. that will benefit me but then other riders are looking at them so it's hard to explain but i think just calling out riders for what i think is wrong that's the key it might be i might be right might be wrong but i think you've got to call it out (laughs) if it's wrong or and then hopefully and normally it does come to it but just don't be afraid to like mess up you know if you attack in a bike race sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't you call it in the commentary sometimes it's right sometimes it's wrong it's fine it doesn't matter (laughs) but yeah i think i think that's come from as you said mitch is you know i was never a strong guy so my engine was tiny (laughs) <laughs> so I always had to race my bike as efficiently as I can with as least watts as I could to get in the best position. But then I look at all the other riders and that's, for me, that's how anyone should race a bike. Like you get to the point where you mm. need to attack. You get to the point that's the finish line. You do that in the easiest way possible. You try to get to, say if it's a sprint finish, you try to get to the last 5k as fresh as possible, like literally the freshest you can be. And how are you going to do that? It's less time in the wind. It's less time moving up and down the peloton. It's stopping at the right time Mm. to go for a piss, whatever it is. And it's all these little things that start to add up. So whenever I'm commentating or watching, 
and someone's moving up and down and back at the car in a classic on their own without someone with them, I'm like, ooh, damn, that is going to be. <laughs> ooh, yeah. That's a little half a percent. That's 1%. And then you start looking at all the other bits they've done. And yeah, but I love picking that apart. I love, like, it sounds wrong, but I love calling big riders out for what they've done wrong and not really reading a race and just going, I could do 500 watts for 10 minutes. <laughs> All right, Blythe, that's enough about you, mate. Let's get into the real stuff now. Let's talk a bit of Luft. And I know you don't probably know what this is because you said you're not a massive podcast man, so that's even better. But this is the fun stuff now. The way Talking Luft works, it's morphed over the last few years. It's more or less just a bunch of silly questions, finding out about style. And you were one of the first guys, ironically, it's taken me so long to get, the first guys I thought about when I created this podcast is like Blythe, he loves his style, he loves all the intricate things, already speaking about bar tape at the start of the podcast. So it can work a whole bunch of ways, but the way I've done it for you is four topics, style, bikes, culture, and about you. And underneath them, there's little questions. It doesn't matter, there's no like points or anything, it's just questions and people can just hear about you. So we just start off with style and we start with caps, Capolinos, caskets, the mini cycling caps, how do you wear yours? What's your style? Do you wear it forwards? Do you wear it brim down, brim up, backwards, bit of luft, skull cap it? How do you go? Cap down, so the peak down, and as high as possibly possible. I mean, that has to be like, my hair has to be holding it down, you know? It's literally the higher, the better. So yeah, I'm just full cap, never really backwards. Yeah, just full up, as high as, as high as possible. Plenty of luft, plenty of air under there. Have you ever heard of this? I heard this a little while ago that back in the day when luft was like massive, the guys used to use hairspray to harden the hat to to (laughs) stop that bit caving in when they were racing without helmets. Have you heard of this? No, I've not heard of that. Like the only, the only funny thing I've heard about back in those days when you didn't have to wear a helmet or even a cap if you didn't want to was people would put lemon juice in the hair squeeze a lemon oh, in so to blonde to dye it yeah to blonde it up a little bit but yeah i've not i've not heard the hairspray one all right think talking about that back in the day if you could have raced back in the day without a helmet what style would it have been would it have been a headband would you've worn one of those leather helmets would you've gone a cap maybe just like Chippo style, just the brill cream, slick the hair back. I think I can't, my hair's too, it drops forward too much. It annoyed me. So I'd have probably gone cap, but cut. So oh, cut taffy cap. style. So full taffy style, yeah. So a little bit of hair poking out of the top, cap on forwards, maybe peak up, maybe turn it around in the final. But yeah, full, I, I don't think I'd have worn the little leather helmet. I mean, I say that <laughs> reverse, quite easily. Reverse taffy. I've never I've never seen or heard of a reverse taffy. A rever- cut, I mean, it's, cap reversed. It's that little point, isn't it, though? Do you know, if you're on the bike... <laughs> yeah. I used to train without a helmet way back when, and I'd always wear a cap. But when you were like doing efforts or something, oh, yeah, you felt like you're going back, like turn it round. So I think, you know, you do the start it's like, of the race. It's almost like a switch, isn't it? It's like game yeah. on. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that could be a thing. If you're successful, you could, you know, get into the final of a race and you could just see someone reach around and go, oh, they're like, oh. it's, it's game on. <laughs> Can you imagine like Van Art doing that? You'd just be like, oh, no. Oh, he's, pu- he's turned the cap. It's only 30K into the race. Yeah. Or even worse, he's on the start line with it backwards. You'd be like, oh, shit. <laughs> really? Already? <laughs> yeah. I think that would be the one. That'd be brilliant. All right. Do you still shave your legs? Yes, I do. Yeah. Only Why? What is it for? Yeah. So only because I have to, I do a few like cycling tours and stuff and I'm an ambassador.
ambassador for a couple of companies and there's nothing worse than pictures of yourself with hairy legs like you said i still want to look like a pro i'm not like the hairy now but i'm not if i have to go do a photo shoot or something like that then yeah i'll shave you do you like to wear x pro kit or do you like to wear like the new wave stuff you know like you know slimming black stuff and you know dark or you like to pull out some you know old lotto stuff you know every now and again i i would i would mitch but it doesn't fit doesn't shit like it used to anymore so no i don't i rarely i just use it's mainly all black yeah i'm not gonna lie it's only because after i've stopped you know you you have an expectation of what you should look like still and you put your kit on you like oh you can see a little more through that little faded black bit on the legs now so yeah no i'm just full black simple slim yeah, as possible t- 2010 kit now would be like proper aero kit now on you because it was it was loose you know back then <laughs> So true. You can pull off aero. Doesn't it feel weird if you wear like a 2010 kit with a short sleeve? Yeah. Goes over that little bit of your shoulder. There's like a special groove there for it. Yeah, I think that's what we humans were built for that purpose, just to go over that groove. But I put an old top on, must have been last year, and I was like, oh my God, this is like high up the arm now. But yeah, I love it. I'm quite happy to see actually now we're talking about it is riders are using shorter shorts like it's Tim Malia is coming back with a short short he is there's left length on his short sorry there isn't all these sleeves now which I've got time for I like it the Yates has brought that back a few years ago mm. I remember they went hard on it yeah they did yeah good on them talking about Nicks white Nicks for champions or black white Depend, well, yeah. depends on the rider depends on the rider I'd right s- I'd say if there are what do you mean the country the country as well it depends on the jersey I guess it depends on the jersey but I I definitely think it depends on the rider like you, some riders are like we we say do you still say euro like, yeah so like a euro the rider Euros. like yeah. like a Vanderpole like a bit of a Pagacha maybe maybe a Pidcock someone with just a little bit of flair to them white shorts all mm. day long but like some someone like Van Baal no way stick to black shorts man like don't ever mm. go white so shorts the white's got to suit the character and it's got to suit the kit like because you're not just pulling out white nicks even if you're flamboyant with a belgian national champions kit where's the white yeah, fitting on that yeah exactly you can't do that though i mean i'd love to see it though i'd love someone <laughs> yeah, to have a go at that <laughs> yeah, i'd love to see it <laughs> just the straight jersey the black the black oh, yellow red just with these white nicks bang full white nicks amazing <laughs> Yeah, it's got to be the rider. Uh, if the rider makes the shorts, I think. All right, a couple of things from back when you were racing. Did you do arm warmers over your sleeves or under? Both. Start with them under, but if you had to take them down, leave them rolled down, and then roll them back up over the top. Over. Yeah. Nice. Gloves or no gloves? No gloves all day long, man. No gloves. Can't stand Really? Them. I didn't know that. I can't remember. Oh, you like, never race with gloves? Like mitts or? Yeah, sorry, mitts. mitts. I forgot you got to call them mitts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, bit of both. Bit of both. Depends. I was never like fussy about mitts. It, it really depended on the manufacturer because some gloves, mm. you all know, that they dig in in that little groove oh, yeah. in between your fingers. They put the little razor blades inside them. They were nice, those gloves, weren't they? Yeah, beautiful. Where you just used to finish racing, you'd have a little cut there, pick up a bit of salt <laughs> in the evening. Awful. So, yeah, depending on the manufacturer, comfy gloves, I'd wear them. But I hated, um, I don't know about you, I hated a thick palm. Yeah, okay. Even better, a little bit of silk. Just a little bit of silk on the palm of your hand. (laughs) (laughs) Glasses over or under the helmet strap? Over the helmet strap all day long. Can't be wearing them under. Uh, It's a no-brainer, but uh, some people slip up on it. Um, Race suit or Nixon jersey? What do you think? What about the end of your career? Did you slip the race suit on? Yeah, I had to, man. I had to get every advantage I could get at the end of the career. (laughs) 
depends <laughs> every what, stage every, like literally every stage you know it depended on what it was if it was like a mountain stage in like a welter shorts and jersey if it was a yeah, no, but like, or- you could also argue the other side of that you could also argue a mountain stage in the welter i need the aero jersey as, as much as uncomfortable that would be yeah I could I be fighting for Groupetto here. I was fighting for, Gre- for Groupetto. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's I probably should have done it, but nah, it's just, you know, like, everyone, even in Groupetto, you do a nice hot day in Spain, you're climbing up the last climb, you're in Groupetto, you zip the jersey down, you've got the Jesus piece swinging around your neck, you feel like, <laughs> you know, the gloves are off, the tans on, your arms are freshly shaved, you feel good. And I think that was one Helmet of the strap, things. clip behind, oh, you know, man, arms, sleeves days. rolled up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I used to love that. But yeah, high insight, I probably should have gone for the race suit and like made my life a bit easier. <laughs> Sleeveless jersey or not? Like, oh, you know, yeah. like an old cut sleeve jersey. You training that? Oh, yeah. All day. I mean, if I, England's not the really place to have that. But when it was hot enough, all day, all day, I'd just go out and even a gilet with the pockets in. Just yeah. that just, and that would be fine, yeah. Just a sawn off jersey too, like a real rough cut. So, you yeah. know, you're making a statement. <laughs> There's nothing worse when you cut off a jersey, you're really happy with it. You put it on and it just had like like a pirate, just like little like triangles in certain places <laughs> hanging off it. <laughs> all right, let's move on to bikes. RMG, road bike, mountain bike, or gravel bike? One bike. What's it going to be forever? Gravel bike. Nice. Happy mm. medium. Happy medium. Can do it all on it. Can put road wheels in if I need to. Put. I've got a gravel bike here that I can put road wheels in and 650B mountain bike wheels in. And mm. that is like... So, you can sort of do... You can get down mountain bike stuff uncomfortably, but you can still do it. Yeah. And that is like the perfect bike for doing it all on. Classic rounded bars or ergonomic? Oh, you know the answer to this. Classic, <laughs> classic bars all day long, all day. Double wrap or single? Single and as thin as possible. Oh, you're a thinny. I oh, thought yeah. you were a double wrap. No, I'm like thin as I could possibly get. Do you remember the old, is it Benotto? Benotto tape? Or ki- no, Benotto? I don't remember it. So if you look at the old picture, like the six day riders, you used to have this tape that was literally just cloth. It was like, you know, like the baby muslin. Oh, yeah, yeah. I do know it. Yeah, yeah. So, I love that stuff. Like, it's hard and uncomfy as hell, but I love a thin handlebar, yeah. Euro brakes or goofy? As in, like, you know, left hand front, right hand back for Euro or right hand front, left hand back. What did you do? Did you stay UK or? No, I went Euro, but that sort of got filled into us. We, like, had to use it. I remember when we got on the, I must have been, like, under 16, like, when we joined GB, they were like, no, you need to use it the other way around just because if you get a spare bike from a car neutral service, it'll be this. So, yeah, I was starting my my life with it front right and then moved across front left. Have you continued? Yes, apart from on one mountain bike, which I went out on the other day and, yeah, ate shit pretty much because I went to pull a load of back brake and it was the front. (laughs) (laughs) Tubs or tubeless? For racing. Road. I want to say tubs. Yeah, I thought you would have. Yeah, I want to say tubs, but I've ridden on tubeless and they are like, they are fast, like super yeah, fast. Yeah, they are good. So that's. I thought you would have been more about the aesthetics. Thing is, you can get like a, as long as it's white wall, like a yeah, gum wall. Okay, that's the next question. Yeah, great. <laughs> yeah. Gum wall tires, gum wall tub is perfect. Yeah, I'd probably go, yeah, I'd probably go tubeless with a white wall. Do you have a Strava account? Yes. Do you hunt comms? No. I say are you a loosely. social bunch? Are <laughs> you a social bunch rider or an hour of power? Social bunch rider. 
Do you have a favorite training loop? Like one loop out there, you've got to have one. Tell us what it is. Tell us about the loop. Someone's going to know where it is. Explain the loop for us. So it wasn't really to do with, it was when I was racing, but it was here back in Cheshire where I live. So I live right on the edge of the Peak District and my parents are like two hours away on the bike in Sheffield. Anyone that knows the Peak District, it's basically, it's a little bit like Ardenny. So you've got like a few, just two, three, four K climbs up and down, left and right, fast. You can like run fast in between them, you know, it's like you do the climb, you've got a good down and then you can run fast Mm. on the flat into another climb. And that was to my parents and I used to love riding there and back. Not as hard as I can, but like good, like good tempo, you know. And I always remember just before I won the Nationals in 2016, I think it's like two and a half thousand metres climbing, two seven over like a four hour ride. It's decent. When I won Nationals, I did that and I had like a 320 watt average. So it wasn't like, it was a lot, but I was flying at the time, but it was one of those roads that I know that if I'm doing this at this speed, if I'm doing that at that, I'm like... I'm good. I'm yeah. on, yeah. And even on a bad day, it's like still a beautiful ride. So, yeah, I love it. Love it. Have you considered, and this is something people have brought to my attention, that I've I've actually uploaded one file from back in the day, that you go, oh, you know what? I might have the com on that road from when I was ready for the nationals. Or you just go, you know, I'm just going to create a segment on that road from that one ride and re-upload that file from back in, I can't remember what year you won the nationals, and just go, yeah, let's see how I go. Have you ever thought about doing that? Oh, I've done it. I've done it. Oh. <laughs> I've done it, man. I've done it. And it is horrific. So, there's a climb. There's a climb, like, from Whaley Bridge, like, five miles, well, six miles away. And it's like a road that just goes, it's like a K uphill. You go down for, like, 200 metres, another little 300 metre ramp, down again, couple of lows. And then you've got, like, a, I'm going to say, like, a K and a half, 2K climb to, like, this summit. And I remember before Nationals, I was... There was like me, Chris Lawless, Owen Duell, Cav, and someone else. And we we were going out and I, I was going good there. And I said, right, I'm going to push on from there to there. Got the Strava and it's like, I think it's like six miles, five miles, whatever it is. When I got the KOM and I was like, ooh, this is good. <laughs> and then I told Ian Stannard about uh-huh. it because he's normally who I train with. He just went out that day. And then he went along and he beat it by one second. And I was like, God <laughs> damn it, Yogi. But I was like, fair enough. If he's beat it by what, just one measly second, it was good. It's pretty good. But I tried to beat, last year I tried to have a go at it again. I was like four minutes behind it, man. I was so bad. <laughs> four minutes? Oh, man, like the, <laughs> the So you were really going. Oh, I was going, yeah. But it's the climbs that are, you know those climbs that if you're going good, you can just power over them. But if you can't, mm. you'll try and you'll just fail miserably and almost stop at the top. Then you can't recover on the downhill again. And then you get into the next one and you're like, <gasps> it's just, yeah. So I've tried, failed miserably. A rider comes towards you. Are you a wave person or a simple, you know, nod gesture? Or are you just a bit of a snub, you know, keep your head down, keep powering on? What's, what is your gesture if someone comes towards you? Very Belgian. So it's a, a nod and a finger mm. up off the lever. So it's just like a little, like yep. almost a you. <laughs> Do you make the noise? Sometimes, yeah. You. <laughs> Your best bike of all time. That one bike where you go, oh, you know what? I don't know about that 
it, that bike, I remember it. I had really good success on it. It may not be the fastest of all time, but there was something about that bike that I loved it. What's your best bike of all time? Mm, I mean, the bike I've got now is, I've got a Genesis Zero, it's called, and it is, it's a good bike. It's nothing that's like amazing. It's not the most aero bike in the world, but man, it fits me perfectly. Like for my position, and that's, that's for me is one of the, when you can get on a bike and you're not constantly moving your saddle or moving your handlebars up and down a bit, you're not changing anything one that i get on and i'm like shit this feels good oh, i just love the way this feels mm. the bars are in the right place i get in the drops feel like good feel like i'm racing still so probably that um but when i was racing it was probably that specialized shiv do you remember the one which was mm. like had the terrible brakes on it <laughs> i don't know i can't remember them oh man it was like um it was like their first aero bike they Oh, yeah, I do remember them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like nine and a half kilos, so like heavy, but man, it shifted. It was so quick when you got on that thing. That's what I won nationals on, did the Worlds in Qatar on that, and it was just one of those bikes that once you get it going, it's beautiful, beautiful. That's such a Qatar bike. Yeah, such a Qatar bike. So Qatar. (sighs) It's perfect. Just like an absolute demon, a weapon. Mm. Yeah, it was amazing. I loved it. I remember when I won nationals, Cav had gone on to Cervelo. He came up to me and he was like, lad, it's the bike. You won because of that bike. And I'm like, shut up, would you? (laughs) (laughs) Give me some credit. Yeah, I mean, thanks, mate. I mean, I did just roll you in a sprint. But yeah, cheers. Thanks for coming. Let's move on to culture. Favourite race of all time. Maybe it's not the race you did. Maybe it's a race you just loved to watch. Maybe you had success. I don't know. What's that one race where you go, "Ah, that race? I love that race. Kerner was always good, man. Mm. Like, it's really random. Jeez, I haven't that one. I was surprised. Yeah. It was just a little bit of both, isn't it? Like, Kerner, I never had an amazing result there, but it was like slow start, steadyish start, climbs in the middle early out, but then if you were good, you just got that. 60 70k of nothing then you've got a couple of little climbs mm. on the way in but that race for me was just like it's like the perfect route the riders that want to jump away they've got to jump away early and there is just enough time for the sprinters to maybe come back if they get their act sorted together with the mm. team see i used to love doing that race the laps at the end too make it mm. i don't know there's something about those laps at the end we don't often get that it's sort of comforting to gauge your effort coming to a finish and knowing and just be able to feel how the race is going where the wind is going and you sort of in your mind go through the sprint like two or three times in your mind yeah yeah, yeah it's right yeah this is going to be right just about I, here i'm going to hit off and i think now yeah. you've said that that's really hit a, like i hit a mark in terms of as we spoke about before and so that i used to ride my bike is that if i didn't mm. know a finish you can make a lot of mistakes trying to shelter if you know the finish, the loop you're doing, you'll remember parts was like, oh, shit, it was hard there last lap. I need to sit more mm. there. I need to sit more there. So, yeah, it was. Yeah, I used to love it, actually. Kern and Brussels Kern, in case anyone doesn't know. Did you used to do head vault the day before? Would you do the double? Uh, yeah, every now and again. I'm trying to remember which teams I did it with. But, yeah, head vault was yeah. just like a... Was a for me, it was a brutal awakening to be like, oh, my God, the classics are here. <laughs> just like levers up your ass in the neutral. And it's like, oh, God, it's awful. Favourite rider of all time? Bartoli. Mm. Solid. Good call. Solid, yeah. I don't know about you, but you've got like your riders that I love for the way that they looked. Because before... When I was growing up, we didn't have the TV as much. It wasn't a racing on mm. telly, so we didn't see what we see now. But he was just a rider, man. He looked wicked. The race results he got were just mega. And he was just one of those riders that was a little bit like now, I guess, if Wout Van Aert, you know, Van der Poel's riding. If they're riding, you know, they're going to light up the race. So, yeah, I just mm. he was wicked, man. 
You're just waiting for it. You're just waiting for it. Not that I had any experience watching him because it was sort of just a little bit before my time, really, when I was really watching stuff. But just looking back and looking at the stuff and the races that I loved. Um, let's talk about the favourite rider right now, then. Quite an obvious one, man. It's just Van der Poel. Um, Wout van Aert. Just <laughs> see how confusing they are? Yeah, Wout van Aert. I just, <laughs> I love them both watching them. But I think Wout, for me, is just like, he's so good. He's just so good, man. Like, he can climb. He's basically, if I did a few interviews with Eurosport out in Oman, did like 10 interviews with riders, and I'd always ask him the same question at the end of the, um, at the, end of the questions. And so if you could have one rider's power in your body, hmm. with your brain, for any day in the year, <laughs> what race would it be and which rider would it be? So many riders went, wow, so many. Just any race. Yeah. Any race he can do, and he's just, yeah. He's like the epitome of professionalism, a little bit of character in there, a very humble guy as well. And mm. when he's on, he just looks wicked. Good call. Favourite kit? Oh. Sorry to interrupt your questions, Mitch. <laughs> yeah. Right now, favourite right now. I think before I actually had personal contact, it wasn't Van Art. Um, yeah. But at the end of the Worlds last year, I'd heard some different things and, and Heino, Heinrich Halser had said, you know, when he went to the cross races, Vanderpool was really welcoming and, you know, really welcomed me in and Van Art was very standoffish and whatever. I just heard that. I had no idea. And so, I sort of judged him up like, yeah, I don't know about his character and this sort of thing. And then I had the opportunity to do an interview with him after the Worlds and got to know him and saw him, what he was doing for those people that night, you know, signing, taking photos with everyone in the room, time for everyone. And I just thought, this guy's finished the Worlds yesterday, you know. Um, mm. It was just, for me, he was just a very down-to-earth person. Um, and that, for me, was the the missing piece of the puzzle. The, everything you said before was already up there. And the last piece, I was just like, yep, Van Ar. Boom. So, okay. Um, yeah, we're painting him, painting a nice little picture, aren't we, for him? Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Favourite kid and team, that one team where you go, it could be different. Most people say the same thing, but you go, I absolutely loved their kit, but their roster was a bit crappy. Or you might just go, I love their kit, I love their roster, and vice versa. You might go, I used to love that team in terms of they're a powerhouse but their kit was rubbish you know tell me a little bit about the favorite kit and team you do you know i can guess you probably know the answer to this for me fasa batola uh mate it comes up all the time a lot of people yeah dude that that kit was like the best kit for me like it just looked so good like white bar tape those uh, mavic cosmic carbon wheels with the uh, Vittorias. I'm going to use the green Vittorias. Mm. Pearl Azumi, big long white socks, Giro helmets. The Brit were they Brico glasses or something? Yeah, like they that. were. Man, it just that to me is just like mm, yeah, that is. Even if I'd give me that bike now, I'd be like, yeah, I'll use it. What about the roster? Did you did you uh, like the team? Oh man, you still like got like Cancellara on there. You had um, Bartoli on there. You had. Bizarro on there. Who else did you have on there? Pataki. Pataki. It was just like, yeah, it was just Fletcher. so cool, man. Fletcher, yeah, Fletcher's another one. Just looked wicked. Like, one big memory for me was like San Remo in that team. I think it was when Pataki won, and they just had, they were so wrapped up at the start, and they had all the kit on, and they had like the, yeah. the blue leg warmers, the white actual <laughs> socks over the shoes, the cap under the helmet flicked up, and then they deeply got into the race. They throw a few layers off, and then all of a sudden they 
golden brown legs would come out with pearly white shoes. <laughs> that to me is just like, yeah, it's so cool, man. I love that team. Love it. Do you reckon is missing from these days is the full winter training team photo from training camp in Mallorca where they used to, okay, obviously they're not going to do the string beanies and everything now, but what's got what's happened to the full-length Knicks and full-length, you know, jerseys looking, everyone looking primo down in Mallorca doing it just like going up some mountain looking cool. I never see them anymore, those photos. No, they were like the best photos in the world, especially when they had the, the hats on, the caps or like the... Yeah. That cat with the string thing at the top, like you just said. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The string thing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, them. yeah, yeah. They were wicked. Yeah, they just don't do them anymore. Like, everyone's like too busy doing efforts and watts and <laughs> different calendars now where the, they haven't got time off where they can go and ride around for 50k all together. I used to love those days, man. Did you win your first team have to wear a helmet or not? No, no. It was only, um, look, no one, I did my first actually to the disgust, I think, of the team. They weren't really that happy, but in school Shimano, they never said you have to wear one, but more or less I'd say 99% of people were wearing a helmet. Um, And I just, coming from Australia, looking at all that, I was like, this is a golden opportunity. And when I first reconned um, the opening weekend, I just bandanned it. I was just like, right, this is this is an opportunity. Um, oh, I love it. And I was just like, I'm never going to, I may never get this opportunity again. I didn't know how long my pro career was. It could have been one year. And I was like, yeah. well, this is it. I'm going up, who knows what climb it was, the Quarimon or whatever, bandanning it. I was just like loving life. Yeah, it was so cool. I remember on our first year, my first year on Lotto, he said for any like picture days, please put a helmet on for anything else. You don't have to wear a helmet. So it was literally like the whole team, maybe a couple of riders wore a helmet. Then all of a sudden, they were like, right, we've got photos tomorrow. Can everyone wear the helmet? But do you know, because no one ever wore the helmet, all the straps were like really loose or really tight. The helmet was off the one side because it was too big so they'd not tried it. It was brilliant. Loved it. Oh, I reckon you're going to have a pretty good one of these. This is a war story. They often come out of the Giro. Giro produces great war stories. They can also, classics can also produce good war stories, or you can just get random war stories from other hard races. That one day where you just go, oh, mate, I don't know what happened this day. See out the back, the car's left, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean. Have you got one of those days? I can see you thinking about it right now. <laughs> I've got a lot of those stories. So it was Depana in 2010. You might have been in the race and it was like snowing, freezing. We had to go over the Kemmel twice at the end before we finished in Depana at the coast. I probably would have been. I can't even, I can't remember the day. It was day two and I got in a break. There was like eight of us. There was like me, Gilbert, who's my teammate at the time. A couple of others, Adam Hansen, Seberg was in there, Class Low the White, and a couple more. Good memory. We got in this break. And I was like, holy shit, this is this is going to be a grippy day. It's snowing, it's cold already. Everyone's in leg warmers. I'm in shorts because I'm a Neo Pro and just like, yeah, boy. <laughs> so we're rolling through. And because um, it's so cold, everyone's like going back for bottles, trying to stay warm, getting tea. And we go through the feed zone and it's a slight uphill. And Gilbert went to the front because you have to like separate so you can get a feed bag each because we're in the same team. Oh, yeah. So he goes to the front and I go to the back, but just dangle off a little bit so there's enough time for this one year to get, get a musette. <laughs> get the musette, look up, and like the gap that was five meters is now 50. And I'm like, what the heck is going on? I'm like <laughs> scrambling to get this bag on, get bottles in my cages out my bloody um, bag, chuck it around my neck. And look up, and Gilbert's on the front, looking back and laughing because he's <laughs> dropping me. And I'm like, dude, what, like, really? Five minutes to get back on. Got back on, and he's like, hey, hey, good one, eh? Good one. I'm like, no, <laughs> this is not a good one. This is awful. <laughs> 
Anyway, we get over the kennel, and by this time it is like like minus three, freezing cold. Like Jurgen Rollins was in that race that day, and his eyeball froze. Like one of his eyeballs. Maybe, I can't remember this day. I'm um, sure I was there. I can't remember it. He was so bad, man. And then we got over the kennel. I was still. Still with, there was four of us there. There's me, Gilbert, Class Lodewijk, a Frenchie, got who it was, and me. So five of us. We got over the chemo and I was like, I, I said to myself, if I get over the chemo, I'm fine. Like, I'm laughing. Got mm. over the chemo down the other side. I just got dropped on the flat. <laughs> I was just like out of the wheels, just went, no. <laughs> and then riding through all like the, like near the Hahu, and all those little road left and right. I couldn't really feel my fingers anymore. They were gone. And the car came up to me and there's like, there's a group behind of like 16 riders coming. If you can get down through this next crosswind section, it's tailwind all the way to the finish, you should be fine. And I was like, it was the time of mechanical campbag. I couldn't really change up enough. Like, I couldn't use my yeah. hands. I was like, using them, my other hand to pull the lever. So I asked the mechanic, I was like, can I have another pair of gloves, please? And I couldn't. Oh, no, you can't get them on, though. There's no yeah. way you could get that on. So the thing is, I tried to get it on, and I couldn't. And they were like the seal skin, like, diving gloves. <laughs> so he, he put hot tea in the glove. <laughs> took my hand in the car and like fed each finger into the glove and I had to go around the other side of the car then he'd do the same thing with my right hand uh, got my hands in got to the end of that section got caught got dropped from that group within like 200 meters because they were just going way too far finished got on the bus after and it was freezing and Gilbert came on the bus he came second the dude didn't have gloves on and I was just like what how like who are you like god or something this is ridiculous yeah that was probably the worst <laughs> what I'm imagining is is boiling hot tea out of a kettle you know, oh, into man. a club. Honestly. Did it actually warm your hands up? It did. They were those, like, you'll have had them in your eyes. Yeah, the like, wetsuit like, material. Yeah, something. like wetsuit material. It did, I, I can't really remember him warming him up, but I remember getting my hand in and being <laughs> like, I can move my fingers again now, so I'm, I'm all right. But, yeah, it was just, that was a bad day, man. That was awful. Started out good, though. It's like, often war stories are like, you know, I got dropped, you know, after 1K and blah, blah, blah. It started out good. It started, I mean, it was good. After that as well, I got into, I wasn't down from Wevelgum and Flanders in these races. Then after doing that Depanner and getting in that break that day, they were like, okay, let's put them in Wevelgum and Flanders mm. and Roubaix. So it was, yeah, there was a silver lining with it. Let's talk about you. The last topic, just quickly, BWS, beer, wine or spirits. What's your poison of choice? Mm, wine. Nice. Wine, yeah. I don't drink beer. No, ah, don't know that. It. Yeah, I've just, I've never drank it when I was younger. And then I've never just got into it. I've tried it a couple of times, but I just can't can't get into it. But yeah, mm. wine's the easy one, isn't it? Just take the cork out, pour a bottle, done, finished. <laughs> <laughs> I post a post a beer, you know, don't you mean you pull the you know, pull the, the yeah, string back, right. crack yeah. a can, it's, it's all confusing, <laughs> I get that. Yeah. <laughs> what coffee do you drink? If any. Flat white, espresso. That's pretty much it really. Don't really I'm not Start got- well, you start with the flat white move into espresso later in the day or you just mix it up whatever's going just whatever's going i mean i'm not really an afternoon coffee drinker unless i'm in a cafe if i'm at home i'll rarely Mm. put the coffee machine on in the afternoon so yeah start with a flat white maybe another flat white if i'm really knackered and the kids have been up all night then a little espresso just to top it off yeah do you have a favorite cross training exercise something you like doing that's not riding a bike yes boxing yeah not like not getting smacked not getting hit because I'm, I'm just shit at boxing, but just to go in on the pads, you know, I think that's, it's quite, it's, I'm rubbish at it, but I don't know if you get this, it's like an ex-professional, 
if you're doing a workout for something else, you want to be able to feel like you've done it, if that makes sense. Mm. Like if you go out on the bike now, if I, if I do three hours, I'll feel it, but I'm not like, Ugh. I'm just I'm just so used to it. Whereas boxing, if I do it for 45 minutes, man, I can barely get off the toilet the next morning. I'm broken, which I, I like to feel that it's done something, and that is one of them. It's like doing like a massive six seven hour ride that kind yeah. of feeling like i've actually achieved i was i was out the back today splitting wood for like 45 minutes it was one of the best things i've done I mean, my whole back was blown out you know i was like oh my god i came in need to get massage of course i didn't get one but i was like i felt like i needed to recover crack yeah. a beer i really earned my beer yeah i like that wow. though i like I think now that I don't have to ride my bike, I still do. But if I'm going to do exercise and it's something that I want to get some out of, I want to feel like it's done something and not be like, yeah, it's all right, right sort of thing. So, yeah, a little bit of boxing. All right, Blythe, there's going to be one of these races out there and this is something, the most rewatchable race. So, that one race you go, you know what, I don't know what it is about this race. I just love rewatching it. And if people haven't seen it, you need to go and watch it. What is it? Ghent 6 in 2000. 18, I think it is. Forgot what it is. The Ghent six-day track event. If anyone's not knowing, yeah, two eighteen. What 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 happened? It was, so it's basically, ah, yeah, Wigo Cav. Uh, they were teammates. They were world champion at the time. They'd done a six-day in London. So it was a home ground. They didn't win that. So then they went to Ghent the next week, and it was kind of like right, all in to win this for them. And they were on the back foot on the last chase on the last night. I don't know if anyone really remembers Bradley riding <laughs> the track, but. Bradley on a track bike, for me, growing up, was just like everything. He was just like the pedaling, heels down, smooth, rock steady body. <laughs> just if, like, if anyone wants to know or what that should look like, just watch Bradley. Like not on a team pursuit or anything like that, like a proper bunch race. Anyway, he's, he's in Ghent 6. They have to get two laps to win the race. He goes. They have to get, they have to take two laps on the bunch. Two laps on the bunch. So it's, it's a lot. But in Ghent- the last, in the last session. In the last session. So I think it's an hour long chase and they leave it until like the last 20 laps as well. It's like, ooh, it's close. And the so pass- when they took the first one, we was everyone like, oh, that was pretty impressive, but no way they're getting the second. Yeah, basically. Yeah. This is my understanding of this event is that I heard stories of that sixth day and a lot of the riders were asking Bradley to slow down because he was just like on one. He'd get on the front, tear it up so no one could attack or he'd attack and then he'd want to keep attacking and keep attacking. And then like Bradley, look, man, you, you need to chill out. You're to make us look awful here so yeah he takes so why were they why were they why were they third then why were they not just winning i think down to the points and everything so you get points Uh. retrace you win and then you get laps taken but obviously there's say there's like six teams in contention those teams will like Mm. team up a little bit so you can take one lap go under the radar a little bit and then all of a sudden you take another lap and in the meantime brad and cab might be like oh shit they've taken two laps and we haven't even taken one yet so then they take another Mm. one and are almost back in contention but now the other teams are looking at brad and cab to be like right we're going to follow them because they're going good so anyway this this whole thing of just the way that brad and cab they take one lap and then this is called a duplet so you take one lap you don't sit on the back you just carry on going straight over the top of the peloton again and then go for another lap. And it's rare that you see it. And when you do, you're like, God damn, the crowd's like, yeah! Oh my goodness, they've got in! They've got in! 
Oh, that's heartbreak for teams two and three. It's been declared to be minor places, I'm afraid, with four laps to go. And all of a sudden, there's a roar from the British contingent. Look at that. They're a lap ahead. It doesn't matter about points to those guys. They uh, Time has run out to take another lap, I'm afraid, between teams two and three. And he's going on the attack again. Have some more of this, says Bradley Wiggins. We mean business here. And just listen to the response. Everyone is on their feet. The last drawing, I guess, of a line in the sand by Bradley Wiggins. At the moment, he's kicking sand into everybody's faces. Phenomenal. Is it a grimace? Is it a grin? I think it's possibly going to be a bit of both. So Bradley Wiggins lets Mark Cavendish finish this six days. But it's just, for me, watching that, watching Bradley doing it, because when you watch it, it is just like, holy shit, he is going so fast on this little track it is just yeah it's just beautiful i love watching track racing in those those six days when those riders are on you can watch them and watch them and watch them again and i think that's probably why i love watching it so much if i compare it's... it to road racing road racing there's too many sections there's a start there's the middle there's the end and then there's like the end end which is the exciting yeah. whereas tracks just like bam 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 i love it yeah i remember watching it now as we're bringing it up is that when we go was going he was just you could see he was physically going that much faster. It sort of looked like the bunch was sitting up, almost waiting. And then the camera would zoom in on the front of the bunch and you'd have like Ilio and, you know, Tequila there. These guys are like full mask, giving everything they could. And they were substantially losing time. And Cav, no disrespect to him, he was holding, which was already significant, holding the same gap, but not really closing it. And he'd swing Wigo back in and you just see the gap closing. It's, it is phenomenal. And it's a race that I hadn't really watched um, until we started speaking about it. So it's it's really great to watch. That is a really good one, Blythe. It's a wicked one. Yeah, I love it. It's just key Wigo for me. It was like peak Wigo at doing something that at that time, no one really knew how good he was. And then when you see him, you're like, God, Damn, that guy's good. All right, last question, Blythe. The one thing that you love about riding a bike, you know, we ride it so much. You're still riding one now, retired rider. Very different to what we were doing when we were racing, but all wrapped up into one. Why do you love riding a bike, mate? Just getting out, man. I mean, it's this might be so such a simple answer, but it's just the freedom, the fun, the enjoyment, and just feeling like a kid again, man. You know, just like cruising, mm-hmm. going, having a laugh with your mates, sprinting for signs, chucking it into corners on downhills, suffering on an uphill it's just literally going and having fun i know that sounds daft but i grew up playing out on my bike after school going and going down a little park with my mates in the woods where we dig jumps out and do jumps and stuff and kind of like that now i just go out with my mates cruise around have fun going like smash myself up a hill and then be sick at the top and have to sit down for 10 minutes <laughs> but it's just that <laughs> it is literally just the the simplicity of a bike and the joy you can get from it is I've st- it's still very much deep within me. Awesome, mate. It's been great having you on Talking Loft. Thanks for sharing that with us. Uh, no worries, mate. Thanks for having me, bud. Well, how did he stack up old Blythe, eh? He's pretty good. He knows his stuff. Always good to hear him. It's a familiar voice. I know you've heard him on the commentary. I love his commentary personally, and he's a great guy to have a laugh with and a cheeky beer. A big thanks goes out to Rafa, who are partnering with us in the podcast, Will Jones, who puts these episodes together, and the Life in the Peloton team, Megan Spurlow as well. Guys, I've got an awesome episode. I know I say that every week, but I really do have a great episode for you next week. It's called The History of the Tour de France. 
everything you want to know about the big race that we watch every July, the whole history. And I'm speaking with the master, Francois Tomazo. If you know him from the cycling podcast, if you don't know who he is, he is a journalist on the Tour de France for 35 years. He knows every single thing there is to know about the Tour de France. And he says it in such a beautiful way. I sat down with him over the last sort of week and recorded a four-part series about the history of the Tour de France, and I'm going to bring that to you next week. So until then, guys, I hope you enjoy the Tour de France. Cheers. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Cheers, mate.